Good morning, my name is Ed, and welcome to Gateway. If this is your first time being here, we are delighted that you're here with us. Thanks, we're honored. We are beginning a series of conversations, as I said, from the book of Philippians, and we're going to be focusing on spiritual growth. The Apostle Paul challenges us to step up and step in, and today we're going to be looking at the opening section of the book of Philippians, and we're going to be talking about excellence. So, boys and girls, we're really glad to have you in here this morning. One Sunday a month, we have our elementary young men and young women in with us. They get to see how we do what it is that we do in here. So, just to let you know how holy and godly they really are, how holy and godly our worship team is. We were praying before the service this morning, and I said, I, you know, I forgot to tell you guys that the elementary kids were going to be in with us this morning, and one of them said, so no cussing today. So... Boys and girls, we're going to be talking about excellence, and we're going to be looking at a superpower that you can grow in your life. To set us up for that, I'm going to ask Christelle if she would read for us the opening section of the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. And let's go old school and stand out of reverence for God's word. Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Christelle? Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseas and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel I from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who begun a good work in you will bring it to the completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And okay, hold on, Christelle. So if you're the kind that underlines things in your head, I want you to underline the next three verses. This is the highlight of what we're going to be talking about this morning and the highlight of this opening section of Philippians 1. He's going to use a word here in a minute. He's going to use our word for the day. He's going to use the word excellent. Some translations offer the word best there. Either way, we're talking about our best, what is excellent. Okay, go ahead, Christelle. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with the knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit and righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And Father, that's our prayer for ourselves this morning and for one another. That our love would abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that we might be able to approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless, filled with the righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Hear us today. In the strong name of Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Christelle. So part of what happens in us when we are growing spiritually is that we get better at choosing what is best. In other words, our capacity to choose 
and to do what is absolutely best for us is enhanced. Our capacity to choose and to do what is absolutely best for us is enhanced. Now, no doubt any of us, I bet, have ever known anyone who has completely eliminated mistakes. But without question, our knowing and doing what is best superpower gets more and more refined as we grow more and more in our connection to God. This is one of the reasons why spiritual growth is so important, because this superpower grows as our connection to God grows. And this is one of the reasons why Paul wrote this letter. He's teeing up this principle from the very beginning. This is his prayer for the Philippians, and it's God's heart and God's message for them and for us. So I want to show you a typical form for a first century letter. We've got lots of examples of, of letters written from Rome and other parts of Europe and Asia Minor and the ancient Near East, and many of them follow this form. First, the sender identifies himself or themselves or herself, and then the sender identifies the recipient. So instead of the letter beginning, Dear Bob, my letter begins, Hi, I'm Ed, and I'm a really great person, and this is to you, Bob, and you are also a really great person. And then there's some kind of greeting, salutation, and then there was usually a thanks to the gods, and then there was a special request to the gods on behalf of the recipient. And Paul follows this form. First, he identifies himself and Timothy. And, and then uh, he identifies the recipients of the letter. And after that, he offers grace and peace. And then he thanks my God. And finally, he offers an elaborate prayer on behalf of the Philippians. I think it's fascinating that Paul chooses to follow form when he writes most of his letters, including this one. That means that the opening paragraph that Christelle read for us this morning isn't just a spontaneous overflow of his heart. This is a thought-through, intentional, and well-designed paragraph. Paul is using a well-known pattern to pack a punch in this opening paragraph. Of course, Paul is deeply appreciative of the Philippians, what they've done for him. As we'll see, part of why he's written this letter is to thank them for their gifts. And he's overjoyed at the good news he's heard about them. He clearly feels a profound affection for them. But this opening paragraph is much more than just mushy, I miss you guys so much, you're the greatest kind of talk. This isn't just warm-up or small talk. Paul wants to lay out a really clear, critically important spiritual principle. And the highlight of it, again, is the section in verses 9 through 11, the prayer for the Philippians. So I'm going to read it one more time. And it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So God is deeply interested in our knowing and doing what is best superpower. He wants these Philippians and us to be able to approve what is excellent in all circumstances and then to choose what is excellent, resulting in a pure and blameless character. Should I ask her to marry me? Should we move to Colorado? What should I major in? Should we sell the town home? Should we repair the car or buy a new one? Which one of these people should we let room with us? Should I put her on my team? Should we get him a cell phone? Should we bid for this contract? God longs for us to be able to answer these questions effectively. 
And as we grow spiritually, we increase our capacity to navigate these questions and get to the best outcomes. So maybe the key for us is not so much what do I do in my current situation, but instead maybe the key for us is to think how do I become the kind of person who can consistently approve what is best in my life? Okay, I think there are at least, you may think of others, but I think there are at least three challenges for us especially for us and our cultural wiring that highlight our need to hear from God, that challenge our ability to grow in this superpower. And and they all have to do with how we think and how we approach questions. So let's jump out a little bit into the world of sociologists and psychologists and economists. And I'm going to suggest three ways that we are severely challenged in our growth and our ability to approve what's excellent. Challenge number one, we really believe that the key to better decisions is more information. I thought of this when I was working through this. I had a couple come visit me not long ago who was considering a move. And they brought with them a legal pad, line down the middle, pros on one side, cons on the other, and they had gone through a litany of of variables and and tried to answer them as best they could. Uh, Housing price here, housing price there, schools here, schools there, nearness to family here, nearness to family there, job specifics here, job specifics there, and this is the advice they ask. Ed, what other questions do we need to be asking? We really believe the key to Better decision-making is more information. Okay, Dr. Ruth Chang is a philosophy professor who has studied the process of decision-making. She's done talks all over the world on how to make hard choices. Spoiler alert, she doesn't really tell us how to make hard choices, but she makes some interesting points. Dr. Chang says this, hard choices are hard because of the way the choices relate to one another. In other words, when one choice is clearly better than the other, the choice is easy. A choice becomes hard when both options are very nearly equal. All right, this is obvious, but it makes sense. And then she says something that's not so obvious. In fact, it's counterintuitive to us. She suggests that the main reason we get paralyzed by hard choices is because deep down inside, we nurture the faulty assumption that the difficulty is due to our ignorance or our lack of information. If we only knew more, we would be able to decide. That's what we believe. Dr. Chang says that what we really want is, and I'm going to quote her here, what we really want is to have Netflix upload a movie that gives us the full details about how each choice scenario would work out in our lives. So here's what my life would be like if I married Demarius, and here's what my life would be like if I stay single. Obviously, Netflix does not offer that service. But I want you to imagine for a moment that it did, that Netflix did offer. Imagine if we could get Netflix to upload that movie. Dr. Chang is contending that that would be extremely unhelpful for us. Those movies would be impossibly long. And I believe they would add to our paralysis instead of helping because each decision we make is followed by a thousand other decisions, each of which impacts our story differently. We'd never be able to live. We'd be watching this movie constantly. We'd be watching alternatives and then alternatives to alternatives and then alternatives to alternatives to alternatives, etc. Dr. Chang has to be right. 
Often our need for more information rests on the faulty assumption that the key to deciding what is best is more information. And this thinking and this pursuit becomes not helpful but paralyzing. Of course gathering information is an important part of decision making. Legal pad lists of pros and cons can be very helpful, but this is absolutely not the key to good decision making. This is not the key to choosing what is excellent. Choosing what is excellent rests on our love abounding more and more. And Paul is obviously not talking about our love for birds of the mid-Atlantic or superhero movies. He's talking about our love for one another and for God. As this love abounds more and more, our superpower grows. Challenge number two. There's a second challenge, and I think it's an equally unhelpful way of thinking. We believe that our decision-making is improved by more options. The more options we have, the better we'll be able to make a good decision, we think. The Western marketing industry, by the way, knows this full well. They know this is how we think. Plus, I believe we need to make note this morning, you and I live in the capital of this kind of thinking. We live in the American suburbs. This is why when you visit the average suburban supermarket, this is what you'll find. We take this for granted, but I want us just to make note of this. You find 38,900 items in the average suburban supermarket. There are 182 salad dressings in the average supermarket, and that doesn't count the boxes in which you can make your own salad dressing. There are 75 different varieties of iced tea, and there are over 60 toothpastes, including 27 kinds of crest. I went to Harris Teeter in Brambleton last night, and I counted... 37 different kinds of balsamic vinegar. Not vinegar. 37 kinds of balsamic vinegar. Organic, non-organic. There's even white balsamic vinegar. I didn't know that existed. Barry Schwartz is a psychologist who wrote the book, The Paradox of Choice, Why Less is More. When he talks about this kind of thinking, he uses a very technical psychological term. It may need some explaining, but I want to quote him here. He says the idea that more choice leads to better decisions is, quote, crazy. Dr. Schwartz claims that the official dogma of Western societies is this. This is our official dogma. This is what we live by. So follow this. If we're interested in maximizing the welfare of our citizens, the way to do that is to maximize the individual freedom. This is because freedom is a good thing in and of itself, and freedom means that we can act on our own and no one has to act on our behalf, and, and the way to maximize freedom is to maximize choice. The more choice people have, the happier they will be and the better their decisions will be. Dr. Schwartz says that this thinking is so deeply ingrained in us, it's, it's part of the air we breathe and the water we drink. And once again, he calls this thinking, the technical psychological term is crazy. Swartz claims that the array of choices our lifestyles have produced leads not to liberation and better decisions, but to paralysis. He offers a laundry list of studies to back up his claim. For example, listen to this. He looks at one study that used the data from Vanguard Mutual Funds. This is a huge company with about a million employees. And they did extensive research on how to best offer their employees and others individualized retirement options. Shockingly, they found consistently over time, with every 10 new options that they added to the menu of individualized retirement options, the number of people investing went down by 2%. The more options they added, the fewer the people invested. 
So in other words, in a real life example, when a company offered 50 investment options, 10% fewer employees participated than when they had offered five investment options. When offered more options and more choices, instead of making better decisions, more people chose to make no decision at all. Paralyzed. That's not all. Dr. Schwartz marshaled an impressive amount of research that demonstrated, listen to this, more choice actually produces less satisfaction when we do make a choice. As an anecdote, I won't give you any of the studies, but as an anecdote, Schwartz at one point asks us to imagine the process of buying jeans. He says, you know, if you're old enough, you will remember a time when you went in to buy jeans and there was one kind of jeans. Now, there is relaxed fit, regular fit, slim fit, boot cut, regular cut, tight cut, pre-washed, distressed, zipper and button, just to name a few. Schwartz contends, the last time I bought jeans, I bought the best fitting pair of jeans I'd ever bought in my life, and I was less satisfied with them than any pair in memory. I had to write an entire book to explain this to myself. He suggests that this is due mostly to the escalation of expectations. So here's how it works. In other words, given all the choices we have in toothpaste and cell phones and salad dressings and jeans, when we pick one, we expect it to be perfect. But of course, nothing is perfect. Maybe that's why the swipe left and swipe right dating generation has been slower to get married and they're less satisfied when they do. Schwartz concludes that our belief that greater choice leads to better decisions is a fallacy. It is, again, technical word, crazy. Greater choice often leads to paralysis and dissatisfaction. What we need is not more options. What we need is love that abounds in knowledge and depth of insight. And this is not knowledge of the periodic table or the batting averages of the Washington Nationals. This is knowledge of God how he operates, his story, and our place in his story. We've got to disabuse ourselves of the thinking that we need more information or more choices. What we need is more knowledge of God and greater insight into his work, his ways, and our part in it. Third challenge. There's a third challenge in the development of our superpower skill, and I think this might be the most challenging challenge of all. Uh, Dan Gilbert has spent his career studying happiness. He's a Harvard economics professor and he wrote the best-selling book, Stumbling on Happiness. Gilbert builds an entire book around an astounding claim. Don't miss this. He claims that we are not very good at knowing what will make us happy in the future, but we think we are. We make really bad predictions about our own future happiness, but we don't know it. Evidently, 2018 Ed is not very good at knowing what 2025 Ed wants and needs, but 2018 Ed thinks he knows. Again, Gilbert offers a wide array of studies to back up his claim. Let me give you one example. Astounding. He looks at the happiness of lottery winners versus the happiness of accident victims who have been paralyzed. Now, both groups have been studied extensively. So Gilbert gathers this data and he compares them to one another. Now, not surprisingly, 100%, you rarely get that, but 100% of people surveyed would prefer to win the lottery over being paralyzed in an accident. And yet, five years after the events, these two groups of people report nearly identical levels of happiness. 
And some studies have indicated that the misery levels in some lottery winners is exceedingly high. In other words, these two groups overall are equally happy, but the lottery winners who are unhappy are deeply unhappy. They're unhappy at levels that you don't find in any paraplegics. We aren't very good at predicting our future happiness, and there are two important corollaries to this. Number one, we place far too much value on the capacity of certain events to affect our happiness. I'm going to say that again. We place far too much value on certain events to affect our happiness. Things like more money or a new house or a makeover. We dramatically exaggerate the power of these events to bring us happiness. Again, this is what research tells us. And secondly, we are far too easily influenced by extraneous and unimportant factors. Once again, we are far too easily influenced in our decision-making by extraneous and unimportant factors. For example, Gilbert conducted an experiment with residents of Cambridge, Massachusetts and some Harvard students where he brought people one at a time into a studio and on the table in the middle of the studio was a pile of potato chips. And then he had the interviewer ask them to predict and rate it, how happy they would be eating these potato chips a minute later. Then he added a bizarre variable. In the corner of the room, for one set of people, he put a box of Godiva chocolates. The interviewer didn't mention it. They were just sitting in the corner of the room. For another set of people, in the corner of the room, he put a can of Spam. And I want you to look what happens. Bring up the graph, Jonathan. I don't think you can see this very well, but the light colored on your left, the light color is the Spam, the orangey color is the Godiva. So that left side was their prediction of how happy they thought they were going to be eating potato chips a minute later. No difference. They walk into a room, sit down. How happy do you think you'll be a minute from now eating this salty deliciousness? Corner of the room, there is Godiva chocolate, and they predict that they're not going to be very happy at all. Corner of the room is spam. I'm going to be really happy eating these, this delicious, greasy potato chip. And then they report their actual happiness. They made very different predictions about how much they would enjoy the potato chips based solely on the presence of spam or chocolate in the room. And as it turned out, these predictions did not bear out in their experience at all. We are far too easily influenced by our neighbors, by our family, by our immediate sensations, by advertising, by a can of spam. We are not good at knowing what will make us happy. So our decisions about whether or not we should get married or move to Colorado or major in art history or invite Priya to be our roommate, those decisions are often challenged by our inability to predict our future happiness and our belief that we really are good at it. And we end up making decisions that are less than excellent. So how do we enlarge our decision-making superpower? We're not good at predicting our own happiness. More information and more choices do not necessarily help, and they sometimes hurt. What are we to do? I pray that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, knowledge about God and how he operates, insight into who he is and our part in his story, so that you may be able to approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. All right, 
Let's not sleep on that notion of being pure and blameless, by the way. I want you to think of the last time you were discovered looking at something you shouldn't have been looking at or buying something that you didn't want to be known or going somewhere or saying something or being with someone that you didn't want discovered. In that moment, you would have given anything for purity and blamelessness. So here's the don't miss this principle. If you miss everything else today, don't miss this. The kind of spiritual growth Paul prays for, the kind of spiritual growth that God longs for each of us to have and to experience is no small thing. It saves us from our most damaging and most embarrassing mistakes. We become the kind of people who will make decisions that lead to our best and to purity and blamelessness. We become the kind of people who approve what is excellent. I want to be that kind of person. And I bet you do too. Before we wrap up, let's step aside from our knowing and doing what is best superpower for a second, and let's make note of two really important emotional features in this opening paragraph that are going to echo through everything Paul says in this letter. So this is how he opens up. As he thinks of his friends from Philippi, he feels enormous joy, and he feels great confidence. Why? Well, first of all, he feels joy because of, you see it, because of their partnership in the gospel. Their partnership in the gospel. Okay, if you're part of Gateway, this is a big one for us. We're convinced here at Gateway that our purpose as a church is to draw others into authentic Christian community. So pause for a second for dramatic effect. We are, as I said earlier, delighted if you're visiting with us this morning. And we're pretty excited about our new facility. We're still working out some kinks. Uh, I ran back this morning and told Stephen, by the way, if you're sitting up front, I apologize. The vocals weren't in the front speakers clearly enough. So it was a little muffled. When we first moved in, we didn't even have these speakers in. We just had the top speakers. And uh, the room was designed so that, in case you're wondering what these doors are down here, we're going to build a stage extension so I can get even closer. And it's going to come out from the stage so the people who designed our audio, too much detail, but the people who designed the audio for the room, they built it so that there's a, you know, a little vacuum up here so that we wouldn't get feedback. And we had to fill that in with these speakers. We're still learning our way around our building, but we're really proud of it. And we're so excited for what God has done here. And we're excited that you've been visiting. And over the last three or four months, we've had a number of people visit us. Thank you. It's awesome to have you. But I want you to know, when a group of us gets together like this on a Sunday morning and we lay out carpet squares, this is actually a gym, and we set these chairs up early in the morning. And by the way, if you'd like to help, we'd love to take your help. So we set this up and we all come in and we gather together and there's a crowd of us and we sing some songs. Jordan is playing and singing. Rebecca, that was awesome. It's great today. And we're, that doesn't make us a church. That makes us a crowd. In order for us to be a church, we've got to connect to one another. We've got to build a relationship with one another and with God. We've got to get deeper with one another. That's what it means to be church. And whenever we talk about connection or community here at Gateway, we're borrowing from the New Testament word koinonia. That's the word they used in Greek. That word means community. It means fellowship. It means partnership. Check it out. That's the word used in this sentence. 
In other words, our community with one another is not just our attempt to build good friendships so we don't have to be lonely. Our community is a partnership in God's story. When we build community with one another, we're saying yes. We're saying, I'm in. I want to participate in what God's doing. I'm not just going to be a spectator. I'm investing. Paul is overjoyed because these Philippians have said yes. And the second thing he clearly feels, and we'll hear this echoed throughout, he feels very confident in his Philippian friends. Why? Is it because he knows how talented they are? Is it because he knows the new facility that they've built in Philippi? Is it because he knows how fast the suburbs around Philippi are growing? Look at all the potential. No. Paul feels confidence in the Philippians because God, who began a good work in them, God will bring it to completion. This gets at the heart of how spiritual growth happens. We will repeat this theme. This brings us to a profoundly important principle that, again, we're just going to get repeated a couple of times in this letter. Here's the principle. Without me, God won't. Without God, I can't. Our spiritual growth is an intimate partnership between us and God. He will be faithful to his part, so we must do ours. So let's resolve to do our part. It's 2018. Let's resolve to step in. Let's resolve to grow spiritually, to enlarge and enhance our connection to God. Let's push into him, knowing that we will become the kind of people who can approve what is excellent, displaying purity and blamelessness, filled with the fruit of righteousness. I have been living alongside some of you for many years, and I've seen how you've pressed into God, and I've watched you approve what is excellent over and over again. Sometimes through difficulty, sometimes through discouragement, but your life has shown the effects of this superpower. This year, let's press further into God and farther out into his will for us. Let's make this the best year yet spiritually. And all God's people said, I didn't even have to say, did they really? For others of you, this is a new thing. This is a new category. All right, so make it a new thing. In fact, make it the thing this year. Resolve to press in. Resolve to do whatever it takes to grow your connection with God. Apologies for the self-serving personal story, but years ago, before we moved to Northern Virginia, Diane and I had a man who was part of our, the church that I pastored before moving here. We'll call him Larry. And Larry was a mess in every sense of the word. And he was by nature... There was just a lot of deception around Larry's life because there were a lot of things for Larry to not tell the truth about. A lot of what was going on in Larry's life was very, very costly if people would find out about it. So Larry was constantly creating some mess around him in his work, and he would roll through jobs constantly or in in his marriage with his kid, one thing after another. At one point, Larry got into some trouble, and he asked if one of my main elders and I would come over and pray for him. So we'll call this guy Lee. So Lee and I go over to Larry's apartment to pray for Larry. We sit down in his den. Larry, how can we pray for you? And Larry begins to spin a yarn. And honestly, you guys, I think it was one of those God moments. I mean, it was really powerful. 
I don't know why this moment among any others because this was just so typical of Larry, but I think Lee had had enough. So Larry finishes his, the yarn he's spinning, and it, you know, he bows like he's going to pray, and Lee stands up and he says, Larry, I cannot pray for you. There is no truth coming out of your mouth. I'm out of here. And he walks out. And Larry went from zero to 60 in .3 seconds. He was angrier than up to that point in my life I'd ever seen anyone. Clearly, this is underneath the skin in Larry's life, but I'd never seen it before. I mean, he was explosively angry. I thought he was going to hit me. We continued in the conversation, mostly me trying to preserve myself and calm Larry down and tell him how great he is, even though I think Lee has done this very courageous thing. And then he begins to do it again. Then Larry calms down and sits down, and he starts to spin his yarn again. So I say, Larry, essentially, I think I was more epic than this, but something like, I'm with Lee. And I got up and walked out. Well, we didn't see Larry anymore at church, and I didn't think we would. Larry quit going. His, his wife and kid continued to come. We didn't see Larry at all. The next I heard from him was a few months later, and he'd been arrested for possession with intent to sell. So Larry went to jail. We're going on with our lives, minding our own business, and months later, I get a letter in the mail from Larry. In, in all of our moves over the years, I've lost this letter. I wish I still had it. I'd, I'd love to read part of it for you this morning. But it was incredible. You never get this kind of thing in life, so I really, you know, I should have framed it. But uh, I opened the letter, Dear Ed, you were right about everything. And he goes on to talk about how much he appreciated how steady my life was with Diane and with the boys, with our children. I feel emotional about it because it was a revelation for me. I was ADD before they diagnosed ADD. And I'm ADD emotionally and spiritually. The last word that anybody would use to describe me would be steady. I want to thank you for how consistent your life has been over the years and how steady your life has been. And I realize that I've been all over the place and you're still there still faithfully following, still consistently choosing what is right and what is best. Now, I didn't know that that was true of my own life. And it really, you guys, it was a moment for me of being able to thank God, seeing him develop his character in me, make, turning me, without me realizing it, turning me into something that I had not been without him developing in me the superpower of knowing and doing what is best. Because left to my own devices, my life would be a mess, and so would yours be, and for some of you, it is. So you need to know, the answer is not for you to unwind that and dial out of that by taking a pill or having somebody say some quick words over you. The way to, to get out of where you are, if your life is a mess, the way to get out of it is to develop the superpower of knowing and doing what is best, to become the kind of person who will make decisions that won't end up there again, that won't end up in that place. And for others of you, the slow and steady pace of making fairly good decisions because you're well-educated and you know how to analyze options. 
That's not good enough. He wants more for you. He wants you to approve what is excellent, not what's really good or not what's pretty good or not what's passable or not what's the best of all the options as I've analyzed them. I pray that our love will abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that we'll be able to approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless, filled with the righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, you've heard our prayer, and now we ask that you would hear our heart. I don't know, the, obviously, the touch point for each of us this morning, but you do, which is amazing. And I pray in each seat you would touch and you would move and you would stir our hearts. In part, Lord, that you would stir us to just long for what is excellent, that you would stir us to long to always be able to choose what is best and to display purity and blamelessness in all of our actions. Thank you that you're working so faithfully in us and through us and under us and ahead of us, accomplishing your purposes and working out your will and finishing the work that you started. We receive your work on our behalf this morning. In the strong name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Would you guys stand with us? We're going to sing a song. Jonathan, there you go. First verse. This morning dawns and evening fades. You inspire songs of Shout to life.
and that what we have heard this morning would change us this week. We pray that you'd help us to live this week in your name, for your glory. And as we receive our offering, we pray, God, that you would help us to use the resources you've entrusted to us to bring honor to your name. Thank you so much, Jesus, for the love that you've demonstrated to us. We love you. Amen. Thank you. You can